The early 1900s was, certainly, one of the most interesting time periods of the last century. Marred by World War I, the early years boasted an explosion in industry, from the rise of the aeroplane to the first Charlie Chaplin film, and even the first crossword puzzle being published in 1913. However, among the glitz and glamour of this exciting new world, there was, of course, a seedy underbelly to the era. From the missing heiress to a perfume empire, and the disappearance of a man who had just sold his business for around $25 million, these are two unsolved disappearances from the early 1900s. Ambrose Small. Peter Ambrose Joseph Small, who usually went by Ambrose, was born on January 11th, 1866, in Newmarket, Ontario, to innkeeper Daniel Small and his wife Helen, who were both 20 years old at the time. Ambrose was baptized as a Roman Catholic just 10 days after his birth. In 1880, the family moved to Toronto, where Ambrose's father got a job managing the Grand Hotel. Four years later, Ambrose began tending the bar in the Grand Opera House next door, aged 18, and by 1889, he had moved on to the Toronto Opera House, where he began to learn the business and work his way up the ranks, quickly getting himself promoted to manager. All the while, Ambrose was also involved in an illegal bookmaking operation, taking bets on horse races. At some point during this time, his mother Helen passed away, and his father married a woman named Josephine Corman. Soon, Ambrose, a determined and ambitious businessman, had gathered enough money to be able to buy the mortgage on the Grand Opera House. From here, he flourished, becoming not only unbelievably wealthy, but also taking his place at the forefront of Canada's theatre scene. By the time he went missing in 1919, he owned theatres in seven Canadian cities, including Toronto, London, and Peterborough and he controlled the bookings for a further 62 theatres. In 1902, Ambrose married Teresa Corman. Teresa was the little sister of his stepmother, and was a Toronto socialite who was well-educated, spoke multiple languages, and was a brutal businesswoman in her own right. The pair bonded over accumulating excessive wealth, but had little else in common. Ambrose was described as a gambler and a womanizer, while Teresa had strong interests in arts and doing charity work. The couple had no children. On December 1st, 1919, Ambrose was well aware that the popularity of theatres was declining as motion pictures began to take their place. Knowing this, he made a deal with Trans-Canada Theatres Limited of Montreal to sell his chain of theatres to the tune of $1.7 million. In today's money, Ambrose earned around $25 million from this sale. The following day, Ambrose met with his lawyer, F.W.M. Flock, in his office in the Grand Opera House. Flock left around 5.30pm and was reportedly the last person to see Ambrose live and well. That night, Ambrose went missing from his office. No one had seen him leave, and no one had seen him outside the building in the Adelaide and Yonge Street area. 
The problem was that Ambrose had a habit of leaving without notice and going travelling for some time, so when he initially wasn't heard from, those who knew him just assumed he was up to his old tricks, gallivanting around in another town and engaging in affairs. When Ambrose didn't come home on December 2nd, 1919, his wife, Teresa, called his friends, who hadn't seen him. One warned her off making a big deal of it, so she decided to wait it out for a few weeks. Then, on December 16th, the manager of the Grand Opera House contacted the local authorities, and an extensive investigation was launched into the disappearance of Ambrose Small. It's unknown if the manager called on his own behalf or on Teresa's. Ambrose took no money with him when he disappeared. His bank account, bursting at the seams, was still full of his riches. No ransom note came. There was no evidence of a scuffle or kidnapping in his office. It seemed that the 53-year-old had simply vanished into thin air. Police analysed the plots and themes of plays showing at his theatres, but found no leads from this. He had not left any cryptic clues behind. Teresa believed that Ambrose had succumbed to another woman, but nonetheless, she offered a $500 reward for information about her husband's whereabouts, later increasing this reward to 50,000. In his office, police found a secret room, which Ambrose used for settling gambling debts and for private liaisons with actresses and performers employed at his theater. However, a search of this room proved fruitless and the investigation returned to square one. There were, however, several witness sightings, although it's not known if they were deemed credible. The owner of the hotel next to the Grand Opera House recalled Ambrose popping in that evening, staying until about 7pm, while a newsstand operator claimed to have gotten into an altercation with the 53-year-old, but this particular account was dismissed by authorities at the time, who believed the man was trying to gain fame from the case. Meanwhile, the Toronto Daily Star launched the story letting the public know what had happened in an article published on January 3rd, 1920. The press was in a frenzy and the locals were obsessed with the story. Ambrose Small, theatre magnate and self-made millionaire, was caught up in his own real-life whodunit. After years of producing opera house melodrama on stage, it was seen as the ultimate form of entertainment. Coincidentally, around the time that Ambrose went missing, his former secretary, a man named John Jack Doughty, also disappeared. Jack had worked for Ambrose for about 18 years before being transferred to Montreal. He was last seen on December 2nd as well, removing bonds worth $100,000 from a safety deposit box at the bank. Eventually, Jack was traced down in America and was extradited back to Canada. He explained that his plan was not to cash in the bonds, but to hold them ransom until Ambrose agreed to pay him some of the money from his recent sale, and to make up for all the hard work that Jack had carried out for him. Jack believed that he'd been underpaid and underappreciated during his career as the secretary of a multi-millionaire. Upon hearing of Ambrose's disappearance, he opted to flee the country, fearing that he would be blamed for his former boss going missing. Ultimately, Jack could not be charged with the murder of Ambrose, as there was no evidence that he was even dead, or that Jack was involved in any way. His sister also gave him an alibi for the night that the theatre magnate went missing. He was, however, charged and convicted for stealing the bonds, and sentenced to six years in Portsmouth Penitentiary, where he served four. Jack died in 1949. A potential break in the case came in 1921, when several newspapers reported the story of a man in Iowa who resembled the missing 50-year-old Ambrose Small. 
A private investigator named John Brothy described the man suspected of being Ambrose as, quote, a half-crazed cripple. But this didn't stop John from thinking that this really was the disappearing businessman. Reportedly, the unidentified man had been dropped off in Iowa by an unknown motorist who said he had accidentally struck the man with his car. He had dropped him off, hoping he would receive good medical treatment. The unidentified man, thought to be Ambrose, had suffered brutally. He had a gunshot wound to the neck, a serious concussion, and both of his legs had been severed from the knee down. For three weeks, the man remained silent, not speaking to anyone. Then, finally, he said, quote, I am Jack Doughty. I came here from Omaha. That's all I remember. At this time, Jack Doughty had already been caught, arrested, and imprisoned, so the unidentified man was certainly not Jack Doughty. The private investigator then claimed he had shown the man a photo of Ambrose, and the man pointed at it and said, Yes, that is me. The two bore the same facial characteristics, but the unidentified man weighed much more than Ambrose did at the time of his disappearance. Regardless of this, the man was taken into custody by the private investigator and his colleagues, but the local police stated that they were unaware of the situation and were never contacted regarding it. There is little more information about this part of the investigation, and it is to this day unknown exactly what became of the unidentified man, or if he was ever ruled out. After this point, the investigation slowed considerably and was eventually closed. However, the disappearance of Ambrose Small was reopened in 1936 and spearheaded by a new investigator, Edward Hammond, who consulted with the original team assigned to the case, obtained copies of reports, and re-interviewed witnesses. Edward Hammond then concluded that Ambrose was murdered in a plot devised by his wife, and implied that the man originally investigating the case Austin Mitchell either ignored or repressed evidence that led to Teresa Small being seen as a suspect. However, Edward Hammond was not the only one to suspect Teresa's involvement. Gertrude and Florence Small, sisters of Ambrose, also believed that their brother's wife was, in some way, shape, or form, connected to the case. Since their father remarried, the two sisters had been financially dependent on Ambrose, and they ended up ensnared in a lengthy court dispute with Teresa over their brother's wealth. They also hired a private investigator to look into their sister-in-law and discover any connection between her and the disappearance of Ambrose, but nothing was ever found. Teresa passed away on October 14, 1935, bequeathing the majority of her holdings worth tens of millions of dollars today to the Roman Catholic Church. According to the Portsmouth Evening News, a year later in 1936, Florence Small presented a letter of confession from someone called Ruta, which states as follows. Poor Ambrose was killed on December 2nd, 1919, and I know that part of his body, the trunk, was buried in the Rosedale Ravine dump and other parts of the body were burned in the Grand Opera House furnace. You will be surprised, my dear Florence and Gertrude, to learn that I am more responsible for your brother's death. God forgive me. Ruta. It's unknown if police investigated this lead or cleared it as some sort of sick hoax. It's also uncertain where the letter came from, exactly. The letter was published worldwide, including in the New York Daily News and the Portsmouth Evening News in the United Kingdom. Since the mysterious disappearance in December of 1919, the case of Ambrose Small has continually attracted attention. 
While the case may be cold, and Ambrose was declared dead in 1924, there have been sightings of him all across the globe. A caretaker claimed to have seen four men burying something heavy in a dump in Rosedale Ravine on the night of December 2nd. An engineer swore he saw Ambrose being held in a speeding car heading north that very night. A magician believed he had seen Ambrose playing roulette in Mexico on April 8th, 1920. Rumour has it he was kidnapped by New York gangsters, while others reported seeing him in Boston and Minneapolis. From what's available online, none of these sightings were ever verified. During a trip to New York, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the famous writer behind the Sherlock Holmes novels, was told about the case of Ambrose Small. He showed interest in it, and consequently, headlines across the country declared he was going to take the case. Ultimately, however, he chose not to. In recent years, the case of Ambrose Small has not been forgotten. It's often speculated upon, with people wondering why he would want to kill himself, if that's what he did, or why he would leave everyone behind, especially his sisters whom, if he had chosen to leave of his own free will, he did not make any provisions for. For many, it seems unlikely that a well-known millionaire would be able to simply vanish or go unidentified if he had a case of amnesia. A number of online sleuths speculate that he either fell victim to a jealous husband, whose wife he had been having an affair with, or he ended up passing away during a kidnapping gone wrong. In 1965, police inspected a possible gravesite, and in 1970, rumours swirled that his ghost was haunting the Grand Opera House. In 1974, the Toronto Sun printed a six-page story on the curious vanishing of Ambrose. His disappearance was so strange that it was dubbed the crime of the century. It's been over 100 years since Ambrose Small went missing, and to this day, nobody has any answers as to what happened on the evening of December 2nd, 1919. Dorothy Arnold. Dorothy Harriet Camille Arnold was born on July 1st, 1885 in New York City. A socialite and heiress, Dorothy's family was wealthy and held a considerable amount of social status. Her father, Francis Rose Arnold, was a fine goods importer, dealing specifically with perfumes, and he had four children with Dorothy's mother, Mary Martha Parks Arnold. Dorothy was the second oldest child. She had an older brother named John and two younger siblings, Marjorie and Dan. As a child, Dorothy attended the Velton School for Girls in NYC, and she went on to graduate from college in 1905, where she studied literature and language. Upon graduating, she continued to live in the family home, trying to launch her writing career. Writing was, by all accounts, Dorothy's biggest passion in life, and she yearned to see her own work in print. However, her family and friends did not support this artistic lifestyle. They often sneered and poked fun at her, especially when she received rejection letters from publishers and magazines. In the spring of 1910, a short story she had submitted to McClure's magazine was rejected. Within months, another story had been refused from the same magazine company. Heartbroken and embarrassed, Dorothy continued to wear a fake smile and carry on with her life as normal, but some people suspect that this continued rejection and the fact that no one in her life supported her ambitions is what led to her eventual disappearance that year. 
On December 12, 1910, Dorothy left her family home at around 11 a.m., telling her mother she was going shopping for a dress for Marjorie's upcoming debutante party. Her mother, Mary, offered to accompany her daughter, something which was seen as unusual, as reportedly Mary was often unwell. But Dorothy politely declined and told her mother that if she found a dress, she would call her. Upon leaving the house, Dorothy had about $25 to $30 worth of cash on her, which is the modern day equivalent of between $700 and $800. From here, we know that Dorothy walked from her home on 79th Street to the Park and Tilford store at the corner of 5th Avenue and 27th Street. She charged half a box of chocolates to her father's account and then walked to Brentano's, the bookstore, where she bought a copy of a humorous book called Engaged Girl Sketches by Emily Blake. According to the employees of the bookstore, there was nothing unusual about Dorothy. While not in high spirits, she was polite and pleasant, and nothing seemed amiss. When she left the bookstore, Dorothy ran into an old friend of hers, a woman named Gladys King. The pair chatted for a bit, discussing the upcoming debutante party, and, much like the bookstore's staff, Gladys found her friend was talkative and seemed in a stable mood. They then parted ways, as Gladys was meeting her mother for lunch. Dorothy mentioned that she would walk home through Central Park. She was last seen at 27th Street just before 2pm, waving goodbye. Dorothy's family grew suspicious when she did not return home for dinner. This was highly uncharacteristic of the 25-year-old, as she would never miss it without at least informing someone in the family first. Not wishing to draw too much attention to themselves, the family called around Dorothy's friends, asking if anyone had seen her. They told her they had not. Just after midnight, a friend rang the family back, asking if she had been found. Mary, who answered the call, told her that yes, Dorothy was back home. When the friend asked to speak to her, however, Mary refused, saying that her daughter had gone off to bed with a headache. Unfortunately, valuable time in Dorothy's case was lost when the family did not immediately report her disappearance. Fearing the unwanted media attention and social embarrassment, the Arnolds refused to contact authorities. Instead, the following day, Dorothy's older brother John called the family lawyer and friend John S. Keith, who came to the house to search for clues. In Dorothy's room, he found personal letters with foreign postmarks, although the nature of these letters is unknown. He also found two pamphlets for transatlantic steamliners and burned papers in the fireplace, suspected to be Dorothy's rejected manuscripts. Nothing else of note was found in her room. All her clothes and belongings were in place, except for what she had on her the day she disappeared. In the following weeks, John Keith visited jails, hospitals, and morgues in New York, Philadelphia, and Boston, but found no sign of Dorothy Arnold. He later told the press that two months after she'd gone missing, he'd received a tip from a lawyer that Dorothy was in a local sanatorium in Pittsburgh, and he'd sent two agency men to look for her, but the woman they found was not Dorothy. Since his searches turned up nothing new, John Keith suggested that the family contact Pinkerton Detective Agency and hire them to investigate the case. The family did so, and the agency searched hospitals and places Dorothy was known to frequent. They interviewed old classmates and her friends, but no one had seen her or knew anything relating to her disappearance. Given the transatlantic pamphlets found in her room, the agency theorized that Dorothy had perhaps gone off to Europe to elope with a man. However, when they looked for her name in marriage records, they could not locate her. 
Agents even travelled out to Europe to check ships that had come in from New York, and although several similar looking women were found, Dorothy herself was not. At a loose end, the agency, along with John Keith, suggested that the police finally be called. The family were reluctant to do so, but were persuaded in the end. Law enforcement advised the family to hold a press conference to draw in publicity. By this time, six weeks had passed since Dorothy was last seen. On January 25th, 1911, reporters gathered at the conference to watch Francis Arnold tell the world his daughter was missing. He offered a reward of $1,000, which is the equivalent today of about 17,000. During the event, the press asked if it was possible that Dorothy had run off with a man, considering Francis did not allow her to date, but he denied this and told them that he'd have been glad if she'd associated with more young, busy men, saying, quote, I don't approve of young men who have nothing to do. This remark was reportedly a jab at a man Dorothy had been seeing for some time before her disappearance. 42-year-old George Grissom Jr., an engineer from a wealthy Pennsylvanian family, had met Dorothy while she was studying at university. Despite his age and wealth, he continued to live with his parents in Pittsburgh. The press was quick to find out all of this information. They also found out that, months earlier, in September of 1910, Dorothy had lied to her parents, telling them she was going to visit an old classmate in Boston, but instead spending a week at a hotel with George. Francis and Mary discovered their daughter's lies when they found out she'd pawned jewellery for $500 to fund the trip, although it was apparently worth much, much more than that. Although her parents forbade her from seeing George, Dorothy continued to stay in contact with him, with the pair frequently exchanging letters. They saw each other one final time in early November. Before reaching out to the press in January of 1911, the Arnold family had contacted George to find out if he had seen their daughter or knew anything about her whereabouts. He was holidaying in Florence, Italy, so the family sent him telegrams, but George told them he knew nothing about it and denied any involvement. Later that month, on January 16th, Mary and John Arnold took the trip out to George to personally interrogate him. However, he continued to deny knowing anything. They asked him for the letters Dorothy had sent him, but he told him they contained nothing of importance and that he had already disposed of them. So the family left empty-handed. In the days following the announcement of Dorothy's disappearance, police widely distributed her photo, description, and information throughout America, Canada, and Mexico. The New York Times covered the story on a near daily basis, with the frenzied publicity leading to sightings all across the United States. These leads were always thoroughly investigated, but often proved to be false. At some point during this, the Arnold family received two ransom notes from alleged kidnappers, demanding $5,000 for their daughter's safe return. The authorities proved both of these to be hoaxes. As the end of January approached, authorities reported that they believed Dorothy was still alive and that she would return when she was good and ready. However, the Arnolds had already begun to make peace with the idea that their daughter may never return home. Francis Arnold told the press that he believed Dorothy had been attacked and killed while walking home through Central Park, and that her body had been thrown into the reservoir. He cited as proof two clues that he would not publicly disclose. Police refuted these claims, stating that the winter had been so cold that the reservoir had been frozen over in the days before and after the 25-year-old's disappearance. Nevertheless, the authorities did search the water when it thawed, but they found no trace of Dorothy. 
In February of 1911, just weeks after the conference, George returned to the United States. When questioned by the press, he simply announced to them that he had every intention of marrying Dorothy whenever she came home again. His only condition was that the couple had her mother's blessing. In response, Mary told reporters that she would never approve of the couple's relationship. Early in February, Francis received a postcard that had a New York postmark on it. It was signed by Dorothy and simply said, quote, I am safe. While the handwriting matched his daughter's, Francis believed someone had copied it from a newspaper article which had published images of her script and that it was some sort of cruel joke. Also around this time, a jeweler in San Francisco contacted authorities to let them know a woman he thought resembled Dorothy had come in to ask him to engrave a diamond wedding ring on January 17th. The inscription read, quote, to AJA from ERB, December 10th, 1910. Nothing further seemed to come from this lead and it's unknown if this woman was Dorothy. Later that month, the San Francisco Chronicle published an article about several hotel clerks who'd been working where George had been staying on holiday. The staff members told the paper that they'd seen a veiled female who resembled Dorothy during George's stay. The pair were spotted having an earnest talk that they couldn't hear, but they noted that the woman looked greatly agitated. In the following months, George spent thousands of dollars placing newspaper ads in which he asked Dorothy to come home. At this point, the New York Police Department announced that they would stop looking for Dorothy, stating their belief that she was dead. There had been no clues, no trace of Dorothy in 75 days. When the authorities continued to look into reported sightings of the 25-year-old, not one of those leads panned out. There is an abundance of theories surrounding Dorothy's odd disappearance. Some believe that she slipped on an icy sidewalk on her way home, struck her head, and ended up with amnesia. But both the Pinkerton Agency and John Keith searched hospitals, and there was nobody in there matching Dorothy's description. Others have suggested that she was perhaps drugged and kidnapped, but it's important to note that the 25-year-old went missing in broad daylight from one of the busiest areas in New York, making the case all the more baffling. George Grissom Jr., Dorothy's lover, theorized that the young woman had killed herself due to her failed writing career. After her second short story was rejected, she wrote to him, stating, quote, "'Failure always stares me in the face. All I can see ahead is a long road with no turning. My mother will always think an accident has happened.'" While some friends and family believe she took her own life, many thought it was due to her crumbling relationship with George rather than her writing career. One of the main theories in many of these old cases is the idea of a botched abortion in which Dorothy died and her body was disposed of without any of her friends or family knowing. This was given some credibility when in April of 1916, police raided an illegal Pennsylvanian clinic. The clinic was in the basement of a home named the House of Mystery due to the number of women who visited there and never returned. The clinic was run by Dr. Meredith, Another doctor by the name of Dr. Lutz told a district attorney that Dr. Meredith had told him that Dorothy had died there after complications during the procedure and that, like many other women, her body had been burned in the furnace. While the DA believed him, Francis Arnold believed the story was ridiculous and absolutely untrue. That very same month, a convicted felon named Edward Glenoris, who was imprisoned in Rhode Island for attempted extortion, told an extraordinary tale to the prison warden. 
claiming he'd been paid $250 to bury the body of a young woman in December of 1910. He said an acquaintance of his who went by Little Louie had hired him to drive a woman to and from several locations. At a home in New York, Edward and Louie met two men, one who went by the name of Doc and one who was well-dressed and appeared wealthy. This man matched the description of George Jr. The men loaded the unconscious woman into the car and took her to a home in New Jersey. During the drive, little Louie told Edward that the woman was named Dorothy Arnold. Edward said he recognized her and was able to identify the signet ring she always wore on her left hand. Edward was dismissed for the day after this occurred, but was asked to return the following morning where Doc told him that the woman had died during an operation. Edward and little Louie drove the woman back to New York, wrapped her up in sheets, and buried her in the cellar of an abandoned house. Despite willingly confessing all of this to the warden when the police came to interview Edward, having been contacted by the warden himself, he denied knowing anything and refused to answer any questions, acting as if he was confused. The cellars of several homes in the area were excavated, but turned up no clues or remains. Upon hearing about this confession, Francis reportedly said that Edward was talking, quote, utter nonsense. 11 years after her disappearance in April of 1921, the case gained media attention once again when, during a lecture in New York, Captain John Ayers of the Bureau of Missing Persons claimed that Dorothy Arnold's fate was known by the Bureau and by her family, and had been for quite some time. He did not elaborate or confirm if the young woman was dead or alive, the next day, following the media uproar, the captain said he'd been misquoted and denied the notion that her fate was known to family and the Bureau. Although there is a lot of information available about Dorothy's case, it is difficult to narrow down one particular theory when so many seem possible. Sightings in the years after her disappearance all proved to be false. Letters sent to the family from women claiming to be their long-lost daughter were disproven. At some point, a lawyer in California claimed that Dorothy was living under the name Ella Nevins in Los Angeles, but Francis heavily disputed this. In the weeks following Dorothy's disappearance, Francis Arnold spent around $250,000 trying to find her. That is over six million in today's money. He maintained the belief that his daughter had been kidnapped or killed around the time she went missing up until his death on April 6th, 1922. He made no provisions for his missing daughter in his will, stating that he was, quote, satisfied that she is not alive. According to family friend and lawyer John S. Keith, Mary felt differently to her husband, remaining hopeful up until the day of her death on December 29, 1928. After her passing, John Keith stated his belief that Dorothy had taken her own life as a result of her failed writing career. Even today, over a century later, the mystery of Dorothy Arnold remains unanswered. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. If you're still hungry for true crime content, you can check out the Cold Case Detective podcast, which is published every Monday on Spotify, iTunes, RSS feed, and Google Podcasts, and a week later here on YouTube. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.